Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to The Academic Life. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Ben Waldabowski, who is the author of The Career Arts, Making the Most of College Credentials and Connections. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks for having me. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about this book. Um, it covers so many things that um, I I know people are concerned about and looking for answers on. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Oh, sure. Well, um, gosh, I'm trying to think where to start. I'm sitting here in my home office in Chevy Chase, Maryland, just a couple of blocks outside Washington, D.C. I was a journalist for the first part of my career at various, mostly at magazines um, and uh, including U.S. News and World Report and a national journal, the San Francisco Chronicle. And for the last um, 15 years or so, I've worked in a number of different nonprofits, at foundations, at a couple of universities, and I'm currently a visiting scholar at the University of Virginia School of Education and Human Development. One thing that we're curious about here on The Academic Life is how people found their way into their fields. Um, when you think back to when you were making college plans and what you thought you might do after college, um, do you see a direct line or um, would younger you uh, be surprised about where adult Ben is? It's <laughs> uh, a wonderful question. Um, I, I think that, you know, I certainly had no ambitions, at least consciously, to do, you know, to do journalism, which is how I spent, you know, a good 20 years or so uh, of, of my career. And, I, I think I, you know, I think they used to have you fill out these forms when you would take, you know, college, you know, tests and things. And they would always ask you what, you know, what, how many years of education you planned on. And I sort of thought that I would probably get a PhD. You know, that was kind of my assumption going in. But, um, you know, I finished college and I didn't feel that kind of fire in the belly to, to go on to graduate school. 
and really just sort of ended up doing a couple of different jobs and got an opportunity to do an internship where I started doing some writing and I just fell in love with it and was extremely, I just found it incredibly fascinating and satisfying and um, started doing more and more of that. So that's kind of what got me started. Some people say their career found them. Would that describe you? <laughs> oh, gosh, it's sort of hard to, to look back and to be very specific. But I think it's it's certainly fair to say I do feel that, you know, something about having, you know, developed an interest in writing and, you know, writing for fairly, fairly broad audiences, but also writing about fairly wonky kind of public policy issues of all kinds, but particularly education, which ended up becoming my my focus, it certainly feels as though I've really been fortunate to find, you know, uh, you know, a, a field that keeps me pretty busy doing something that I really, you know, for better or for worse, and I enjoy doing in my spare time as well. You know, the, the kinds of things that I like to think about and to read about and to learn about are things that I do, you know, for, for work and also for pleasure. And your new book is called The Career Arts, Making the Most of College, Credentials, and Connections. What inspired you to write that? You know, I had spent many years, um, as, a, as, a, as I said, as a journalist and really ended up specializing in, in education in general. And then increasingly in the last you know, 10 or 15 years, really in higher education. And I think along the way, you know, I was heavily focused on, you know, in some ways what you might call the you know, purely educational aspect of, you know, college and university education. But I was certainly aware um, of the fact that, you know, people go to college, not just, you know, because they care about the life of the mind, although that's important, but they, they care a lot about improving their future career prospects. And I got more and more interested in that aspect of the sort of education and workforce, you know, system, if you like. Particularly, I worked at a large nonprofit called, it was then called Strata Education Network. It's now called Strata Education Foundation. And it's really focused on trying to improve connections between education and the workforce. So I think that that experience just got me focused a lot more on not just, you know, what's sort of happening on college campuses, although that's fascinating, and you know, what's happening within uh, you know, everything from the pure, you know, academic side of things and the research and the discoveries and the insights and the discussions, but also how people connect those to what they're going to what they're going to do to make a living in the real world. And you tell us in the book that one of the reasons that you wanted to write on this topic was that you feel there's a false dichotomy between college and practical skills. And this book is in some ways a rebuttal to that. Do you want to break down this dichotomy and maybe where you think it came from? Absolutely. I mean, it's, um, you know, it is, it is really something that I, I've noticed over the years and I continue to notice and, you know, it, it, it really troubles me. You know, I think it's this idea that there is somehow, you know, students today somehow have a choice between, you know, traditional academics or really practical career preparation. You know, you could call it, um, you know, I think this came up years ago in a presidential debate, you know, the philosopher versus the welder, you know, do we have too many of one or not enough of the other? This is a very, very old question in, uh, in education, you know, going, going back to the, the Greeks and, you know, there's always been, you know, I think 
question about what exactly is the purpose uh, and the end goal of education. And I think, you know, there has always been, you know, some of this tension as to is education instrumental? Is it just simply equipping a person with a bunch of specific practical skills on their way to some kind of, uh, you know, gainful employment? Or is education about exploration, intellectual discovery, finding out what is true, finding out what is what is virtuous, you know, what is important in life? And I think, you know, <laughs> maybe needless to say, but there there aren't easy answers, but I certainly, you know, come down in the book in favor of moving away from this sort of really very unhelpful false dichotomy, uh, this either or approach to degrees or very practical vocational training. And I think that there's really a lot of strong evidence that we need much more of a both end approach, that there is a lot of value to, to broad education and to, you know, traditional college degrees. Uh, partly because they come in so many different forms. There's also a lot of value to targeted skills, um, but I think we should not view them as as two completely distinct things, but we have to understand that they work together. And in chapter two, you talk about the value of the degree, um, the strength of the college degree, and the importance of completing it. Often in these dichotomous conversations, the value of the degree is not reinforced it's chipped away at mm. in those conversations and and you feel that there is a value to the degree and you feel it's important to finish it do you want to talk about that of course i mean look because I, I would start with just the basic economic evidence you know it's funny <laughs> you asked earlier about things i things i uh, whether i thought i might do anything like what i'm doing now when i was younger and i i don't i, I don't really know but i certainly looking back, find myself thinking, if I had to redo things, I'm pretty happy with the things I got to, to study, but I I would certainly spend more time on economics. Um, that was one of the few topics that my dad actually told me he would like me to take an economics class in college, and I, I never did. Um, and in fact, I ended up, as a, as a journalist, writing about economics and you know got to interview people like Alan Greenspan, who was the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve at the time. And I've gotten extremely interested in education economics. And the reason I begin by, by saying that to answer your question is there's just very, very strong economic evidence, you know, from all kinds of people, you know, usually known as labor economists who, who look at the value of what they call human capital. And this just has to do with, you know, how much people know and learn and what, it, what kinds of abilities it gives them to do things uh, out in the world. And, you know, at the most basic level, you know, the lifetime earnings of, of people who hold bachelor's degrees are not only significantly higher than people who only hold high school diplomas, but they're significantly higher than they were 30 years ago, something like 75% higher lifetime earnings for bachelor's degree holders than just a few decades ago. So I think this is just very powerful evidence that if you look at this, it's not the only way to look at the, the value of a degree, but if you look at this purely in terms of average financial returns, they're extremely high. And you find returns on an associate's degree and returns on a graduate degree as well. It sounds like one of the keys is finishing a degree. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, um, you know, this is one of our great, you know, it's, it's one of the great failings, you know, of the, the U.S. educational system, where certainly it's a challenge which is we have actually, we've been pretty successful 
you know, unlike some much more old fashioned, you know, hierarchical elitist systems, you know, um, we have made access to uh, some kind of post-secondary education, education after high school, available to a lot of students. And, you know, depending on the year, it's been down a little bit, you know, in the last, you know, few years for, for a number of reasons, including COVID. But, you know, we have upwards of, uh, you know, in the 60s, up as far as, as high as 70% of recent high school graduates going on to some kind of post-secondary education, you know, which could be community college, could be a four-year college. And, you know, the trouble is that we have extremely high non-completion rates, you know, for people who are going for um, for uh, four-year college degrees, you know, the standard is to look at what is the completion rate over a six-year time horizon. And, you know, the, the national completion rate, I, I don't have it right in front of me, but I believe it's, you know, it's something like 60%. And, like many things, unfortunately, it's it's even worse when you disaggregate by by income, by race. It's it's lower for people from lower income backgrounds. It's lower for blacks. It's lower for Latinos, and you know this is just a, a real problem because all of those benefits that I've described are benefits that accrue to people who complete degrees, and we just have a really bad non-completion rate. I've noticed in the literature that the term dropping out is not used much anymore, which I am glad about. And instead it's stopping out, yes, which right. I think describes accurately what happens. The stopping out happens for a host of reasons. And I think as we use the right terminology to talk about when students separate from school prior to having a degree, we can start to look at the reasons why. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that's a reasonable point. You know, it is to some extent, I think, you know, terminology kind of comes and goes. You know, honestly, part of me feels like that's not sugarcoated. You know, I mean, there is a there is a bluntness to the term dropout, you know, which I think is certainly still used pretty widely by a lot of people in regular conversation. But you're quite right. You know, there is a phenomena. I've, I've heard it described, especially with community college students, as swirling, where students will start school for a while and then they'll stop. And then when they stop, it's not because they made some grand decision to abandon it and to drop out completely. It's because life got in the way. You know, they're often, particularly I'm thinking of community college students, they're often older students. They are, they're working. They have family responsibilities. You know, they have a lot going on. And they're often, they're not from, you know, usually very, very, uh, you know, affluent, privileged backgrounds. So it's tough for them to do that. And I think you're, you're quite right that there is a lot of need for, you know, very intentional, purposeful support systems for those students, not purely on the academic side, although there, there is still a real problem with lack of academic preparedness uh, for many students who've, who've finished high school who really aren't as ready as they could be for college. But there's also a lot of need for, for counseling people you know, on everything from, you know, financial aid to making their schedules work with their other commitments to helping them choose courses that are really going to, you know, that are going to lead to a purposeful sequence of courses. And so they don't just feel like they're kind of flitting from one thing to another, maybe wasting their time and not making the kind of progress that they're going to need if they want to get ahead in life. Helping people connect with purposefulness seems to be a, a theme of the book. I don't know. It's an explicit theme, but it seemed to me to be a foundational one. You talk about, um, increasing numbers of parents reporting maybe that they don't want their child to go to college or that they're concerned. You talk about numbers um, 
from a generation or two ago where the majority of parents would say, yes, they should go to college. And now it's almost a 50-50 divide. Yeah, yeah. Part of me was wondering if parents feel they can be more honest about the uncertainties. In the past, it was culturally appropriate to say, yes, that is the way to get ahead. I want them to go even if I didn't go. I wonder if now it's a little more culturally appropriate to admit the world's an uncertain place. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it. I mean, I guess I tend to view it more as one of those things where they're just in my view, there's just a disconnect between the, the 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 reality of what we know from you know the actual evidence on things like you know average salaries, lifetime earnings, and so forth. And there's really, in my view, an excessive degree of anxiety about the value of college. So I'm not sure whether it's that parents are being more honest. I think that people aren't necessarily that well informed. I mean, frankly, the the public discussion really suggests that you know. College may not be, you know, such a such a valuable thing that, you know, there's a lot of worry that people are going to college and somehow maybe studying something that's very arcane, that's very abstract, that it's not going to help get them ahead. Obviously, we know college has gotten a lot more expensive. We know there's a lot of concern about student uh, student debt. Those are those are certainly real concerns. But I think that to me, the, the, the bigger challenge is that the, you know, essentially we're at something very close to an all time high uh, differential between average earnings for people with college degrees and average earnings for people with high school diplomas. Um, and yet the public perception is just full of anxiety, which it, it seems to me, even though we there's a lot that could be done to improve higher education, I don't think the public anxiety about college value is at all warranted. And that comes back to the purpose purposefulness, making sure people understand the value of the degree, and also about transferable skills. What you mentioned before, people wonder why we need more philosophers, and they don't maybe have the discourse available of them about all the skills that you develop with close reading and writing and communication and critical thinking skills, and how then those bedrock your transferable skills. Do you want to talk about the purposefulness? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great theme. And, you know, it's, it's, I feel like I'm excited because there's so many different, you know, sort of sub themes to talk about. I mean, I will say, first of all, before I get to I'm very much a believer in the value of, you know, what we sometimes call the, you know, traditional liberal arts. And, you know, I was myself studied comparative literature as an undergraduate. And um, before I get to all of those, which I, th- I think are very important points about, you know, the, the value of broad education, I will also say that most people who go to college, you know, are not studying Plato around a seminar table for four years. You know, people sometimes when they say, oh, college is, you know, an ivory tower, that simply doesn't reflect the reality for many, many students. You know, I have, um, I actually pulled this together for the book and, um, you know, I have a, a paragraph or two that really just quickly kind of goes through very high percentages of undergraduates who are majoring in, majoring in some kind of business. It's around 20% and that could be everything from accounting, you know, to finance, to marketing and, and so forth. You have a ton of students, of course, who are doing you know, various kinds of computer science. Uh, things like data analytics have become very popular all kinds of healthcare. Remember that, you know, the nation's t- teachers and nurses, you know, uh, typically, you know, go through uh, under- undergraduate programs that are specialized. So we have a ton of students who have very practical majors. They're combined with sort of general ed requirements. So they do have to get some kind of basic grounding in, you know, reading, writing, analysis, 
you know, sometimes there may be a, you know, a foreign language requirement or a social science requirement, that kind of thing. But people are really studying, in many cases, pretty practical subjects. But let me go on to where you really started, which is what's the value of the broad skills? And I think what I've heard, you know, from many people I, I interviewed for the book, and I think, for example, of a, a guy who's a very prominent economist at, at Harvard University, David Deming, who's the academic dean of the Kennedy School of Government, you know, he talks about essentially how, you know, a lot of the, the broad skills that people get in college are the things that give their education some real lasting value in the labor market. And those have to do with things like analytical abilities, communications abilities, the ability to absorb, understand, synthesize a, a wide range of information. Um, and, you know, people, of course, are living a lot longer. They're changing careers and changing jobs, certainly many times during their careers. So the ability to you know, to basically, you know, they sometimes call it in business, they call it change management, the ability to adapt to new circumstances, to, uh, you know, adapt your, um, you know, what, what you're doing on, on the job to different circumstances is extremely important. And that's something that I think people often, you know, often associate with those are, those are the kinds of adaptability skills that you learn in a, in a degree program. Um, but I think it's also true that all of the targeted skills although they're extremely important, they have what you, know, you might call a short half-life. In other words, you know, even something like a very specific computer program or maybe it's some kind of graphic design skill, some of those things you're going to have to refresh you know, every few years because the, the, the market changes, the, the specific skills in that industry change. So I think that's why I really get to the, you know, ideally you don't view these as two completely separate pathways but you view them as complementary, uh, that they supplement one another. The broad and the targeted skills work together. You give us an example of a school that has a dual career uh, mission. It's a dual career institution. And they focus both on what you might gain from a liberal arts degree, but also broader transferable skills. You talked to us about uh, Colorado Mountain College. Can you can you tell us why you chose that example in the book? Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, I, 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 it's really a, it's a fascinating place. You know, it is it is actually has a bunch of different campuses and a lot of you know resort communities in the mountains of Colorado, often very expensive places. Um, but you really have a variety of needs, right? Because you have I talked to their their president um, Carrie Hauser, and you know she talks about. How, you know, there are certainly people who they may have gotten a degree 20 years ago. They want to go on and go back to school to change careers. There are people who want to become, you know, law enforcement police officers or, or uh, teachers who need to get a basic undergraduate degree. And there's also people who want to train in something very targeted, like maybe they want to be a river guide or they need to be, you know, they need to learn something about avalanche science because they're going to be giving people tours and they need to make sure that they're doing it safely. And, you know, you may acquire some of those 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 very targeted skills, but what what she explained to me that I found pretty interesting is, you know, let's say you've learned how to be, um, you know, maybe you're a fisher, a trout, uh, a trout fishing guide, or maybe you are a, a different kind of outdoors guide, but you're also trying to build a business, and so you probably need to know something about, uh, you know, accounting and spreadsheets and marketing and communicating with your clients and, you know, trying to really make a go of it as a business. And so these things often, I, I think part of what they've really tried to do 
I think they call themselves a dual mission institution, and they really try to um, to to give people lots of opportunities to do all those different to develop all those different kinds of skills because they're all valuable in different ways. I think one of the more valuable things that I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. These programs can do is name for the students what the transferable skills are. I think there's a sense that people will know how to translate what they've done to their job application or to their resume. And there's a hidden curriculum to the code switch of I wrote all these papers, I did these internships, and now you're trying to tell a potential employer what that what that means for them. Why is this a benefit to you that I did these things? Um, and it seems like some of that comes under the soft skills that you were talking about in the book and also the, the um, social capital. How do students transfer what they have learned into the career market? Well, look, social capital has actually been a real pleasure for me to learn a lot more about and to write about in the book, because I, I sometimes call it um, sort of the third leg of the stool. After the broad education, which I, I really think, as I said, is very valuable, and as I think people are unduly skeptical right now about the value of degrees, targeted skills are also very useful, particularly if people are very careful about how they choose different programs to make sure they're going, they're acquiring skills that have a real Know, demand in the labor market, if that's what their goals are. But social capital is really, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's a term, I think it probably comes from sociology, um, but it really has to do with the, the value of networks and the value of being able to tell your story in a persuasive way. And as you said, it's also being able to sort of, to, to understand and to articulate to others, what are some of the particular skills that you may have picked up? whether it's through an educational program or through another job. So social capital, you know, is really something that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, evidence that particularly people from lower income backgrounds, you know, many of whom are much more likely to be black or Latino, really have fewer, you know, fewer inherited networks, fewer inherited career networks of the kind that somebody who's from a, a middle or upper middle class background may just take for granted. You know, somebody who is going to make a phone call or send an email to help get them a summer internship or a summer job, somebody who might be able to sit down with them and just chat informally about what it's, what's it like, you know, working in a large medical practice or being, being, a, being a, a lawyer. There are a lot of those kinds of connections and, and networks that are extremely important to taking whatever credentials that you have and really putting them to use 
getting a chance to explore different kinds of opportunities. It's really why I, I think that, you know, I think I ended up saying in the book that, you know, you know, degrees and these broad skills as well as targeted skills are necessary, but they're not sufficient. And that's because, you know, you can have, you know, a good, strong academic record, you know, a good, a good, um, you know, degree. But if you don't have the ability to plug that into the labor market, you're really going to have challenges getting ahead. And so I think that the, a lot of efforts are underway to try to help, you know, people from lower income, from less advantaged backgrounds, build social capital more effectively. Chapter four of the book is, is all about social capital. And in it, while you say throughout the book about the value of the degree, um, that it's not enough uh, when you do lack these connections. And you quote um, one person as saying, for some students who aren't familiar with what, what this is, they feel like it's cheating. Um, I That resonated with me because I didn't have networks to rely on. And for people who would say, oh, well, my dad made a call, it did feel like leaping out of what we were told was a meritocracy and taking this sort of shortcut. And in fact, it's part of the fabric of society. Can you help us get comfortable with this when we, when we may feel like it goes on the edge of ethics? I totally understand the question. And I, I'm so glad that that resonated with you because I thought it was a, a very telling comment. And I can tell you the, the, the person who told that to me is Ann Kirshner, um, who was for many years a professor at, at CUNY, the City University of New York, and now at Arizona State. She also was on the board of trustees of Princeton University. So she's really been involved in both, you know, very, uh, you know, el- el- elite and much more open access kind of educational System. She actually just got named to be the interim president of Hunter College for the for the coming year, and I believe she's a first generation student herself. And you know, she, she's taught a lot of students at, at CUNY, um, you know, who you know don't come from you know affluent to sort of elite backgrounds. And I think people really do feel like it's somehow pulling strings is somehow you know illegitimate. And I think. Yeah, of course, we can all think of situations in which somebody who's totally, you know, shouldn't be, shouldn't be, isn't qualified for a particular opportunity or is really only getting a a chance because they have some connection. Um, And that doesn't sometimes doesn't doesn't sit well. But of course, many times it's really just serendipity. It's like if people are happy to do favors and provide information about openings or, you know, opportunities for people that they have some kind of a connection with. So, you know, one of the things that I've really been struck by some of the programs I write about in that, that chapter of the book are programs like Braven, which is a nonprofit based in Chicago, but that has partnerships around the country or a place called Co-op Careers, um, which is has a lot of uh, activity in California, but also in New York City. And what they're doing is oftentimes working with first generation college uh, graduates, mostly from, uh, you know, from low income backgrounds. And they're trying to teach them, you know, some of the basics of how do you, everything could be something as straightforward as how do you, you know, do a LinkedIn profile that, that is, you know, that is helpful and, and, and persuasive and showing people that you've got some valuable skills, but also how do you do something like set up informational interviews? You know, there was one guy I spoke to for the book who was the, the son of immigrants, I believe, from Macedonia. He had gone to Rutgers Newark, which is one of the Rutgers campuses, he had no, you know, it's I think I think his 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 one of his parents worked um, 
as a security guard. I think another was a worked at a, at a lab doing the, the night shift. He didn't have any particular connections, and he was really he was really kind of bowled over by the idea that you could just write to people, maybe through people that he may have met, you know, through his program or people who were fellow Rutgers alumni, and you could ask them for an informational meeting, an informational interview, just to learn about the field that they're in and to find out about, you know, possible opportunities. I think that to go back to your point about whether that was cheating, you know, he sort of felt like, gosh, you know, I don't have any particular family connections, but people are not always, but often willing to talk to somebody. And I think that was a revelation. And I'll just make one other connection, which is not about jobs per se, but it's a similar issue, which is office hours for professors. You know, I think that this has been a real challenge. There are people who even talked about changing the name office hours because it isn't sort of intuitively obvious to some people and to some students what it means. There are undergraduates who feel that, you know, they don't want to stick out as a, they don't want to be a troublemaker. They don't want to be perceived as a, as a problem student. They tend to think, you know, office hours are for somebody else, but not for me. Whereas in fact, what you sort of have to persuade people is just like, you know, just like, um, you know, building social capital, doing something like informational interviews, you know, telling your story, you know, in a, in a, in a reasonable way to, to, to sort of show people why you have some, some skills and abilities that might be interesting you know, you have to tell people that going to office hours is something lots of students do, and not because they're in trouble, not because they're struggling, because they're trying to get to know the professor, they're trying to learn more about the topic, they're trying to show that they're interested. And I think just getting that message across, although it's not so easy, it's really vital. I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, some professors talk about calling it student hours, uh, you know, instead of office hours. Mm-hmm. I know when I was a student, when I would go to office hours, you know, the professor, if no one has shown up, is making use of their time. So when you arrive in the doorway, they're at their computer, they have stuff on their desk, and it's called office hours. So you tend to think, oh, this is when they're working in between classes. And <laughs> I really shouldn't interrupt. Whatever I have can wait. And you may walk away without ever having flagged their attention that you came. And some professors will take that step and put in the syllabus, like, I expect you to come during office hours at least twice before anything is due, just to check in on how you're doing. And if your prior association is that you think, Oh, the only time you get called in an office is if you're in trouble or, you know, you equate it with going to the principal, you're kind of panicked. So getting that practice of dropping by when nothing is wrong can help start to calm down the nervous system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, you just reminded me, you know, years ago, I mean, when I had just finished college, I, I spent a couple of years teaching English in France. And at one point, really just by sheer kind of... um dumb luck. I got a job at, at a local university teaching one day a week. And, you know, I had never, been, <laughs> I had never taught at a college before. I was barely out of college myself, but I, I kind of thought, well, one of the things you're supposed to do when you teach is have office hours. So I sort of told my students that I would have office hours in a, some cafe nearby. And if they wanted to come and almost nobody came, you know, one or two of them would show up, but it was a very, you know, it's, it's a, frankly, it was a fairly traditional, pretty old fashioned kind of hierarchical system. And I think, it just didn't occur to them that that a professor would see it as part of their their job to get to know the students and to you know help them out as needed. A philosophy that you bring through the book is the yes and something that you opened with telling us about to end the dichotomy. We have to have a yes and mindset. What are the ways we can get people their degrees 
emphasize their practical skills and explain to them they are going to have pivots in, in their career, that most skills do have this half-life, this shorter life than you're expecting. And you have learned how to learn while you were in school and you can take that mindset forward with you. I know how to learn. I'm going to keep learning. And in chapter three, you take us through alternative credentials. One of the things that you do emphasize is that many of the people who are getting alternative credentials already have a bachelor's degree. They're, they're doing continuing education for a specific reason or because of changes in their career or changes completely in a new career. Do you want to talk about where in this yes and you really see kind of the sweet spot for these alternative credentials? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, and this is actually one of the things that really was valuable to me as I started working on the book and, and thinking more about it is, you know, it's quite true that there is a need for a lot of alternatives to the bachelor's degree. On the one hand, I think it, it has been unfairly criticized at times, and I think there's excess anxiety about its value. But, you know, depending on how you count it, if you count, you know, four-year degrees, or if you add, you know, if you add community college, you know, uh, associate degrees, perhaps around half of the population has some kind of a degree that leaves a lot of people who don't. And a lot of people are interested in getting ahead in various ways, and they don't necessarily have the luxury of putting their life on hold for four years, you know, while they go out and get a full bachelor's degree. So there has just been a lot of talk, you know, for a number of years about the need for more short-term credentials, more affordable credentials, more career-focused, you know, education and training. There's a lot of talk about the need to sort of rethink the, the, paradigm, of, the paradigm of hiring and to, to think more about hiring for skills. So to bring it to all of the the, uh, the short-term credentials that I sort of add, that I think of under that umbrella term of you know both and, there, um, you know, there are people who do already have you know degrees, four-year degrees, but who decide they want to change of some kind or they want to freshen up their skills. You know, there's all kinds of terms that are used, reskilling or upskilling, and so forth. So there might be someone who you know majored in history 25 years ago, and now they they're interested in graphic design or they're interested in computer science, or maybe they, they're still doing, you know, they're still doing something that, you know, is close to, um, you know, the kind of maybe, maybe they're doing, they're working in a library, but they want to improve their computer skills so they can be, you know, more up to date on the latest technology. There are a lot of people who are going to these short-term skills-based, more tailored programs who already have qualifications and, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think the real challenge is for people who are not going straight to college or have perhaps stopped out, have taken a detour, are there ways in which people can start putting together some of the short-term programs when they can fit them into their lives, but make sure that they're not just dead ends? So there are certain, you know, programs, you know, that are kind of, you know, uh, notorious for, maybe providing a sort of single short-term bump in salary, something like nursing assistant is often used as an example, or even cosmetology. But that that bump tends to be short-term. It doesn't tend to lead to a real viable career path. And in many cases, those kinds of short-term credentials are not that easy to connect to other credentials that will gradually allow you to build a qualification, some kind of a a longer-term qualification. So there's a lot of discussion about what is called stackable credentials. 
stackable. It's a little jargony, but really it has to do with credentials that you can stack on top of one another. So that let's say a person is in a job and they they know that if they pick up some some more accounting skills, they can get a raise. And maybe they can take a class to do that, but they have to take it at night. They have to probably do it online after the kids are in bed. Um, and they don't have a lot of time and they don't have a lot of money to spend on that kind of thing. Maybe they have some employee benefits that pay for education they can use. But you know, the ideal thing is if they can do that and then maybe later that same year or maybe after they, you know, life gets in the way for another year or two, they can go on to some other kind of additional credential and combine that with the first one and eventually build it up to something like an associate degree. And as they continue and, you know, perhaps if they get promotions, perhaps they, they're able to get different kinds of jobs and they see the need for a full four-year degree, they can combine it and eventually stack it up to a four-year degree. So this is really, you know, a vision of, of lifelong learning where people fit in education around their working lives as they can, but also where institutions, you know, and education providers have to have the kind of flexibility and adaptability that allows people to do that. Because although this does exist now, I would say it is not as widespread a reality as it should be. As you were talking, I was thinking through some of the people that I've interviewed, and they report career satisfaction from exactly what you just described. They trained to do something else, so they stayed with their current employer, but they saw themselves growing, having more responsibility, learning something new. Then they saw an opening maybe at the same employer, but they needed different training. So they got that. And instead of reporting stress, I'm going to become obsolete or negative thinking, they had positive thinking that they kept having interesting new things to do because they developed a lifelong learning mindset that allowed them to keep having benefits, financial benefits, career benefits, etc., yeah, I mean, look, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Obviously, you know, we talk about this in lots of other contexts of life too, but you know, the idea of resilience, you know, sometimes there's there's been the work done on the idea of grit, you know, but the idea that you don't look at yourself as simply, you know, acted upon by the world, that you don't have to be totally fatalistic. You know, one of the one of the beautiful things about education, of course, and I think part of why it still holds this, you know, this important place in our sort of national you know, model of what we think of is of the importance of, of opportunity and upward mobility is that you can, you can change the situation that you're in by, you know, by learning more, by building up your own human capital. One of the other things I've started to wonder during this conversation is maybe part of the lack of confidence in the national conversation in a degree, a college degree, is that there became an idea that it was a one and done, which is a model for stagnation. And what you're outlining is about lifelong growth and trajectory. And so we look at, instead of why isn't a bachelor's degree enough? Why isn't it uh, a one and done? Instead of this platform of skills that you've been talking about, and then people can continue to build from that to build their career trajectory. I think that's right, and I think I think it's it's important at least to make that make that an option for people. Right, there are people who are who already are fortunate to have a lot of you know flexibility and mobility and to and pick up skills along the way, you know. And frankly, there are people who, um, you know, people who who go through a college experience and they end up with this mixture of the broad skills and the targeted skills and the social capital, 
and they all kind of all came in a package. They got it through some combination of their personal family background and from going to college. And, you know, maybe they have the kind of jobs where they can learn along the way. But I think that there are many people who don't have that, that so much good fortune who really need to be given a lot of different, you know, pathways to make that possible, you know, throughout their lives. I also wonder if with the pace of technology, it's important to adopt a growth mindset about what we're going to need after we get a degree, because things are going to be different in a few years than they are now, which goes back to the half-life that you were talking about, about skill sets. Can we normalize that so people won't be disappointed? <laughs> gosh, uh, I, you know, the great thought. I mean, I find myself thinking about how, you know, gosh, I don't, I don't know if I don't think I even mentioned chat GPT in the book and, you know, it wasn't really by the time I finished the manuscript and sent it in, I don't think it was so much on our radar as it is now. I, I will say that, you know, it's probably really foolish to try to make any big predictions because we are right in the middle of this, you know, this, this, this change right now. But I tend to think maybe this is just me being a sort of, you know, liberal arts traditionalist, but I, I tend to think that some of those, the, the ability, as I said, you know, before to, 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 to sort of, to read, to synthesize, to analyze, and then to, um, you know, to try and figure out, you know, to find to figure out meaning. I do think that there are limits to how much technology can help us with that. I'm very pro technology and you know, I think technology is amazing and, you know, it is, it is certainly one way of thinking about technology is just that it does create a lot of opportunity for a lot of different people. Um, but I don't think that as of now, at least maybe I'll be saying something different a year from now, but I don't think it's something that people should be, um, should be afraid of or that people should have sort of call into question their their belief in some of the educational fundamentals that we've you know we've we've so far have demonstrated are really important. We're starting to run short of time. Are there other misconceptions or things you'd like to take a few minutes to um, destigmatize here so that um, <laughs> people will understand really the value of the college degree still exists? Sure. I mean, look, I suppose, you know, the, the, the broad point, of course, you know, is that, you know, we really, you know, I do think we have to move away from this sort of false dichotomy, this either or approach that you have a choice between either degrees or practical vocational training. We need to move to a much more of a both and, you know, perspective that sort of recognizes the value of broad skills as well as targeted skills. That's, I think, where the labor market demand is really in a combination. And, you know, I think with, with social capital, again, it goes back to this idea that education and skills are necessary, but they're not sufficient because there are a lot of people, especially those from low income and disadvantaged backgrounds who have to develop access to networks and they need to know how to tap into those networks to connect their education and training to meaningful workforce opportunities. So I think what really, you know, what, what worries me is people saying somehow that college is, you know, is, is sort of not, is not really worth doing anymore because the evidence really hasn't changed much. It's extremely valuable. And we even saw, you know, during COVID when there were a lot of, you know, huge economic dislocation and layoffs, you know, people with, uh, with, with high school diplomas and not college degrees were much more likely to get caught up in that and to, to suffer economically. Um, you know, and I also think for the same reason, I guess I would just add there are people who, you know, there's a big push for skills-based hiring. And, you know, in some cases, many states are starting to drop 
degree requirements for um, for hiring for for certain state jobs. And look, on the one hand, I'm not I'm not attached to any kind of rigid uh, formula for you know the kinds of qualifications that must be you know checked off you know in, in any kind of a checklist. But I think it's fundamentally a mistaken premise. You know, basically, there's a lot of evidence. You know, in the past hundred years. You know, our economy has changed a lot. Education has become much more valuable in the labor market. First high school, we had the universal high school movement, and we had a big increase in college going. And that coincided not with a devaluing of degrees, but with actually a significant increase in the return on investment that people get from degrees. So I just think that, um, you know, the idea that somehow getting rid of some of these degree requirements for state jobs, you know, you might want to do that. There, there certainly might be a good argument for it, but the idea that that's going to somehow make people much better off who didn't go to college, that's simply, I don't think there's any evidence for that at all. I think it's kind of wishful thinking. And I think it, it's what worries me is that it's going to, it's going to take the emphasis away from what I think ought to happen, which is definitely more and better education and more college and more college completion and more, Good alternatives to college for a lot of people, including people with disadvantages who especially need to build their human capital. And I think that if we kind of rush, you know, headlong into this idea that, you know, degrees are overrated and overvalued and we need something, you know, skills-based and short-term and cheap, I don't think that's going to solve our problems. Finally, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? <laughs> Well, you know, I suppose I'm, I, I really, I, of course, you know, would love to have people really, you know, read a lot of the, 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 um, the stories and the anecdotes and the evidence and the arguments that I make in the book, you know, the career arts, because, you know, I, I think it can add something useful to the discussion. And I was especially gratified by some of the early readers, you know, who've given some, some great blurbs and talking about how, you know, it could be useful for everybody from high school counselors to families to policymakers who are sort of thinking about these big decisions. And I think that we just need to try to make sure that we, we keep in mind that, you know, there is a real connection between education and opportunity. And that does not mean the education status quo is perfect. It's not by any means. But I think that we need to be thinking about the most you know, productive approaches to get more people, you know, the kind of education and the kind of human capital that they're going to, excuse me, the social capital they're going to need to, uh, you know, to, to keep on, you know, to getting to getting ahead in their uh, in their lives and careers. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me, Christina. It was such a great conversation. I'm so glad that you're here and we got to talk about your new book, The Career Arts, Making the Most of College, Credentials, and Connections. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You're listening to The Academic Life. Please join us again. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.